And we're back in our studio. Yes, with working computers and air conditioning. Fitting for tonight's show, I must say. Yeah, well, we want to quickly thank everyone who's been interacting with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and our website, and also let you know we've recently gotten an Instagram account rolling if you want to see some behind-the-scenes pictures. Um, while this show is most definitely a passion project and we love doing it, it sure wouldn't be as much fun in a vacuum. Well, we need the oxygen. We there's the, the, the lack of oxygen is not suitable for us and uh, what we do. That nerdiest joke of all time, <laughs> which uh, I wrote the, and you yeah. executed perfectly. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, uh, we're super close on the store. I know we've been talking about that yeah. forever. We actually it's, – it's actually all sorted out. We've just been too busy producing the next show to launch it. So we're very close on that. And also we're setting up a Patreon page soon for those of you who might want to help us keep going and make the show better and also hopefully more frequent. All right, well, this one's juicy, so let's get down to business. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I wonder what awaits us in this hike. Will anything new happen? Zina Komogorova. January 23rd, 1959. The last entry in the Dyatlov Party Diary the night before they left. Join us tonight as we retrace the steps of the infamous Dyatlov hiking expedition in Soviet Russia, where nine hikers died under extremely mysterious circumstances. All right, so covering this story has been one of the most fascinating things I've ever done. I got to be honest, part of the reason that I got into this show and the reason that when we originally started talking about this show... Dyatlov Pass was the number one motivator for me of all the stories that we have in our story folder. Okay, when we got on the phone and we've had our first kind of discussion about the facts and, and the research we've been doing, I've never heard Scott sound more befuddled. And it was kind of hard to explain because you were just like, I, I don't, I don't know. And I was like, wait, are you looking at an iPad? What are you? No, he, you just didn't. You couldn't ha form any thoughts about it. It is. It leads to more questions. The more you turn to it, it's just more and more questions and more mysteries. For me, it's one of the creepiest things we've ever covered. I don't know why. Just the further I go with it, the more it starts to wig me out, frankly. Well, the more you learn about it, there's just weirdly unsettling mysteries and things about it that have no answers, and none of it is satisfying. Yeah. It's, and it's so deeply unsatisfying. We're going to do as much yeah. as we can to satisfy you guys because that's what we want to do. But just know... This story goes in directions that are truly off the beaten path. I mean, you just can't – you really can't figure it out. Well, I think what Scott's saying is that, you know, you'll – you'll and what we'll do, kind of like what we did with Oak Island, we'll kind of whittle it down, maybe, maybe kind of put to the side things that don't make as much sense to us that certainly a lot of people believe in. Uh, but then the ones we end up with, there's problems with those as well. So that, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing. It's like, oh, that's got to be it. Yes. But before we go any further, we just want to go ahead and give a shout out to our brand spanking new Astonishing Legends research department. Who, <laughs> which or who is? <laughs> which is Tess Feifel, who has gone out of her way to help us compile information. She actually has experience in research, unlike us. <laughs> well, And she's yeah. been sending us information that helps us put the stories together. And she's going to be doing that going forward with us. So we just wanted to say thank you so much, Tess. If we'd have put this show together without your help, it would have had a lot more vagaries in it. <laughs> a lot of mindless hypothesizing at the end, I think, of just you know un unfounded research. We're going to have names and dates. <laughs> 
chronologically. Yeah. It, it, but it helps us with our schedule, which already is kind of tight. We know that people want to hear shows more than every two weeks, but part of the reason it takes us two weeks to do them is because there's a whole week of research usually, and a whole week is not a lot of time on a story as, as detailed as this one, or for example, Oak Island, yeah. which yeah. wound up being four parts. Yeah. Are we still doing that? I did. <laughs> yeah. No. It's don't a, when you sit down with a book, it's like, I, I just get home and it's like, well, I got to research for the show. Yeah. And then I go to grab the Oak Island books. Yeah. No, we're not. We're done with that. <laughs> done. Stop doing that. Uh, well, there's a possible secret future show. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's, that's there's what we're going to say things we haven't gotten to. Yes. But, but you know, this show, I wanted to give a shout out to one of our early listeners. And of course, Scott and I have heard this story for a long time. And we've always talked about it. Didn't know the things we know now, probably within the last week. Yeah. Uh, but we had a listener write in suggesting we should do the show. Now, we had one recently, and I can't, I'm sorry, but I couldn't find the name. And I think it might be somewhere buried on a Facebook posting somewhere. And we'll give a shout out to that person once we find it. But Lauren Lane, one of our listeners first is probably the first one who who, who said like, hey, you guys should do a story on uh, Dyatlov Pass. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's in the file. Oh, yeah, it is. As we always say with everything. But it, but truly, it is in the file. It's just a huge file. So. Yeah, it is a big yeah. file, and, and we're glad to have gotten to it. So on that note, let's let's get down to the story. For me, this story, a lot like Oak Island or whatever, when you start out, and even the story of Amelia Earhart, the story itself is the thing that draws you in. And a lot of times you lose sight of the people. You lose sight of you know what? Individuals were involved in this. There were These were people. This is humanity. And then once you start diving in and, and getting exposed to the details, you realize that real people in this case and in pretty much most cases with yeah. our stories yeah. have died. You yeah. know, and well, there are certainly, certainly ones in the past. But I would say that to your point, though, this one <laughs> right up until the time that they did pass, they – documented it pretty well. So there's they a lot did. of photos and journal entries because, well, we're going to get to that, why they did that. But that's what I'm saying is that you really got a picture of who these people were. You really did. And I got us, one of the first things I want to do is give credit out to an outstanding book that we used for reference uh, for tonight's show. It's called Dead Mountain. It's a, it's a fairly new book about Dyatlov Pass. It is uh, Dead Mountain, the untold true story of the Dyatlov Pass incident written by Donnie Eicher. I'm, I'm presuming I'm saying his last name right. I think so, yeah. yeah. And we're going to talk a lot more about the book. We've called a lot of information from it. We've called a lot of information from a lot of other places as well, but it gave us a, a good sort of current backbone. He researched it very, very well. And uh, in fact, if you go to our website, astonishinglegends.com, you can actually purchase the book on Amazon through our website, which we might get a little oh, kickback on. that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, if you want to do that. Yeah. You know, but you don't have to. Go buy it however you want. But <laughs> you seriously, can, we can always yeah. use that nickel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And Donnie could use the pay. He actually went there, so he could yeah. get some payback for that trip. Yeah. He really put it all on the line. He didn't even have a book deal until he came back. And he was traveling. He had a, a newborn and went to Russia and oh, yeah. was the first American to hike the yeah. trail ever in yeah. history. So. Well, well, quickly, I want to say he gives a talk at Google, yes, and, which we'll have a link to, of course. Uh, but what I love is he went there and, and interviewed the only remaining survivor, living survivor. Yes, and, the, and the first, yeah, and the, the first thing the guy says is, "Don't you have any mysteries in America? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, basically, why did you come all this way here to hear this story?" And and he he was compelled to. Yes, he was. Much like we are drawn to this story, and millions of people have been. And actually, it's important to note that. In Russia, the Dyatlov Pass story is their JFK assassination. It is a big, big deal in what's left of the Soviet Union. I'm, I'm even referring yeah. to it properly now. It's, yeah. Is it it's still the Soviet yeah, Union? Yeah, it's right? good. That's close enough. <laughs> You're going to get a call oh from Oh, my God. What an idiot. Yeah. But yeah. No, no. You're right. It's yeah. just that there's chunks have broken off. And, what I'm you know. saying is all yeah. those people, for them, this is one of the biggest conspiracy mystery stories in their 
in their zeitgeist. Yeah. Well, look, they've they've certainly have had generations of mistrust of their own government. You really can't blame them if you know history. Right. So they were at the time in 1959 into the 60s, the start of the Cold War, they were already suspicious of all like, hey, a lot of this doesn't line up. And once they heard, and once they heard about, once they heard it. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can take that. Out. No, I'm uh, now you're not going. The best to, dang it, jeez. <laughs> uh, you know, once they heard about it, it's like, oh, another thing that the government's covering up. And once you hear the facts, as we'll present them, as they're known and released, you'll kind of get an idea that I don't think everything has been made known. All right. So before we get any further, let's talk a little bit about the crux of the story and what happened. Because although it's hard for me to believe, because I honestly have been obsessed with this story literally as long as I can remember. There's a lot of people that probably haven't heard it. So just the brief overview is that in 1959, a group of students, nine students, set out on a hike – actually, ten originally set out on a hiking trip from Ural Polytechnical Institute. It's now called the uh, Ural Federal University. Yes, Ural Federal University to go on this really difficult hiking trip because they were seeking a high-level certification as masters of sport in Russia. Mm -hmm. And this trip was particularly complex and dangerous. But they were highly experienced. They set out on this trip. They left. Then there was a lot of trains and trucks, and we'll get into the specifics of that. And then eventually they were on skis. The point is that they, they were supposed to return to the city of Vichy. Hopefully I'm saying that right. And they were overdue. And when the authorities started looking into it, it turned out they never came back, and they sent out search parties. And eventually, after weeks of searching, they found – All nine of the members that had left, one of them had turned back early on. That's why I said there was 10 originally. All nine of them had died under very mysterious circumstances. And not only that, they had fled their tent, which appeared to be intact and a safe place to be. And their bodies were found scattered about a mile away from the tent in various states of disarray. Yeah, I think frozen that, and dead. Right. I think that's a very concise, good way to put that. Okay. Uh, except that they kept finding the, the original searchers found little clues that just kept making it weirder and weirder. No one to this day has a definitive answer to what happened to these kids that we know of. That we know of. Yeah. It's, it's certainly, certainly, it's not something that they're talking about. Okay. So let's back up a little bit. I want to talk about the hikers because one of the things that that I realized was, and I started to actually feel guilty about, was that I've been obsessed with this story for a long time. I wasn't looking at the people. And when you read uh, Donnie Eicher's book or you start to dig into the story, you realize that there is a very strong component of humanity here. And I felt like the more that I read about them, the more connected I was with them and the more sympathetic and empathetic I was because they were really amazing kids. So well, you know what they're they're like they're like twenty year olds that you might know yourself that were just into the outdoors and mute and playing music and telling stories and poetry and you know what just lovers of life not too much unlike people you might know right so let's introduce them all let's introduce all the players which I'm gonna. I'm going to let Forrest do the names, yeah, because he's right. got a better Russian accent, at least uh, as far as well, I know. They could, than they could I fake do. it, certainly. All right. So, uh, Forrest, let's go through – let's actually go through the list on the names that uh, Tess sent us because I think yeah. that's a good place to start. Okay. Well, let's start with the young man who this pass later became named for, and that's Igor Dyatlov. He was 23 years old. He was the leader. He was born into a family of engineers, and at a young age, he displayed a finely tuned 
curious scientific mind. He was he was actually a genius, and he built shortwave radios for fun at the school, which he actually had taken on previous expeditions, but he did not take on this expedition. They weigh like 100 pounds. Yeah. This particular expedition was no joke, so he obviously didn't have a shortwave radio with him, but he was a, a charismatic, intelligent man who was also a great leader, and he yeah. was revered by the other students in the school as he was the guy that you wanted to go hiking with. You well, wanted yeah. him to pick you, pick me, pick me. Well, he very stalwart, and, yes. but he's the guy that, yeah, he's going he's gonna to get you through this. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, our next person is Yuri Doroshenko. Right, so Yuri Doroshenko, there were three Yuris. Doroshenko, yeah. I'm probably not saying it right, but I'm going to try. <laughs> I think it's pretty close. Doroshenko was 21 years old. He was also a radio engineering student. Student. <laughs> it was very I'll leave that in to, yeah. since you said here. <laughs> oh, that's so nice of you. Thank I heard you. he was a student. <laughs> it's a language we make up when we're delirious. All right. So, uh, but it's a polytechnical school. So these you're, kids yeah, are studying industrial and and sciences in terms of you know yeah. building radios, civil construction, that sort of thing. What you're going to find out here is as we piece this together, these were very smart, capable kids. Very smart kids. Yeah. Yeah. And and Dordashenko was impulsive, brave. He was a very confident man, and he actually famously had chased a bear off on a prior camping trip with nothing more than his courage and a geologist's hammer. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so who's next? Well, one of the two ladies on the trip, Ludmila Duminina. Yes. Now, she was 20 years old. She was the youngest of the group. There were only two girls. There were seven, actually originally eight guys, and she was a student of construction industry economics. And on a previous hiking, this is kind of the best story about her and how tough she was. And also it tells a little bit about her sensibility. She actually on a previous trip had been accidentally – and this is going to come back to because I want to touch mm. on the fortitude and the toughness of these kids. She had been shot by someone else on a hiking Ow. trip, like mm. in the leg. <laughs> and they had to like haul yeah. her out. And they were, yeah. so they were hauling her out. And apparently the whole way out, she was telling jokes and making everybody laugh. Wow. Well, it just yeah. tells you a little bit about the character. Well, of these look, people. these are, these are certainly hearty Russian types used to the Siberian winters. And that will figure prominently as we tell the story later on. Yes. Are you making broad generalizations about Russians? Yeah, I think they would make that about themselves. <laughs> didn't, you, didn't you see the uh, Didn't you see the Sopranos episode where the the Russian guy gets left in the woods in his underwear? Oh yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like basically exclaiming, "Like, hey, I uh, I'm so used to this. I got this. Yeah, <laughs> this is nothing." Yeah. All right. So who's next? Well, let's name the other lady in the group, Zinaida Kolmogorova. Zina. Yeah, she was. Yes. You now she was 22, and although they took turns keeping diaries for the trip, she's the one most closely associated with the diaries with the trip. They they found several diaries from people on the on this particular expedition. Yeah, and then, you know what? They were taking very copious notes because of this certification. Right? They were trying to achieve. That's right. right. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But they wanted to come back with this trip with ample proof they had met all the requirements and done everything exactly the way they needed to do to get this certification. But Zena was actually also a radio engineering student. Wow. And more than a few of the guys – she was a very, very pretty girl. And more than a few of the guys had crushes on her and that sort of thing. So she's actually described in Donnie Eicher's book as, quote, the type of girl who drew admiration wherever she went. Ah, yes. And you'll see a lot of these photos as well. Yeah. They took, again, copious notes and a ton of black and white photos. That's right. So the next hiker on the list would be Yuri Krivonyshenko. Yes, Krivonyshenko was 25 years old at the time of the hike, and he was pretty much kind of a class clown and entertainer. <laughs> he was yeah. he was always trying to make people laugh. He was pulling pranks, and he actually traveled with a mandolin 
and played music for everybody. He's that guy at the campfire yes. playing the guitar, yes. except but, it was a mandolin. Yes, yeah. and they but they wanted him to be there. Of course, they wrote yeah. songs right. together. There was a lot of creativity and artistic endeavors going on even during these hikes, and he was very popular with the whole group. Yes, and you, you got to realize this is communist Russia, so they have to make their own entertainment in a lot of cases. That's right. They didn't yeah. have access to radios or music, really. They had to make their music if they wanted to hear it. Their only exposure to the kind of music they liked was movies. And in yeah. fact, one of the things that comes up, there was a film out at the time called Golden Symphony. Oh, Jackie they were obsessed with this movie. They wrote in their diaries about watching it over and over. It was their sound of music. They even watched it at some of the train stops on the way to the hike. Okay, so before we move on to the next person, a quick note about Krivonashenko. He was a student of construction and hydraulics. Ah, okay. A lot of engineering types. Yes, exactly. Okay. This next gentleman, he's kind of interesting here. Alexander Sergeyevich Kolevatov. He was a very big guy. He was very he was intimidating. He was super intelligent. He was actually studying nuclear physics. One of the things that was kind of funny about him is one of his affectations was he had an antique pipe that he brought with him on the trip and he would smoke, you know, real tobacco in that, which drove the other kids crazy because they all had agreed to give up smoking for the trip. <laughs> no, they were very sober and serious about this. And speaking of sober, the only alcohol they had, I think, was a little flask of medicinal alcohol. Right. right. For yeah. first aid. That's right. Uh, Yuri Yudin had that, actually. But quickly, one last thing about uh, Kolevatov. He would not share his personal journal entries with his friends. Huh? Now, I mean, it's your journal. You can do whatever you want. Sure. I'm not saying that means anything. This is – I'm not trying to trigger a conspiracy theory. No, no, no. I'm just saying he kept his journal to himself, which was different from everybody else in the group. Yeah. Quiet, private guy. Yes. The big, quiet type. Yes. Right. OK. So this next gentleman, Rustam Slobodin. Right. So Rustam or Rustic was uh, 23 years old and he was the rich kid in the group. It's, it's very much when you look at this group and uh, this is something that Tess actually pointed out when she was pulling the, the backgrounds yeah. together for these people. It's it's like the Breakfast Club. It's like <laughs> – it's very yeah. archetypical. You yeah. know, it's or a slasher film. Or, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. In a certain way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Rustic was the rich kid. He had uh, – he was the son of uh, affluent college professors and he had already graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering. He liked playing the mandolin as well. He loved singing and although he was pretty much loaded. He was undeniably unpretentious, and he was very popular with the whole group. Yes, but no, I'm saying it's very rugged. These are these are not, uh, you know, for, for rich kids who uh, are used to lives of luxury. Well, you know, and that's another one of the things that sprung into my mind as we delved into this story. Uh, some people have compared Donnie Eicher's book, Dead Mountain, the one we referenced earlier, to Into Thin Air, just in terms of really capturing the nature of what happened, Into Thin Air being uh, Krakauer's book about yes. the ill-fated Everest expedition. That expedition was all about rich folks. Well, you had <laughs> paying a ton of money yeah, to, yeah. you know, when hauling 35 Sherpas up the mountain carrying all their gear. Well, you had the debutante uh, or journalist who had climbed all these mountains but basically had Sherpas haul her portable espresso machine well, up yeah, the, the mountain. Well, yeah, the co-founder of MTV, yeah. Sandy, I think it was Sandy Pittman, I can't remember. Oh, yes, that's yeah. right. Got yeah. good, good memory. Yeah. Well, anyway, th this is a different thing. This is not what's happening here. Even though uh, Rustic was a, was a wealthy kid, he could hold his own. He was ready to be there. And one of the great things about him, when you look at the pictures, and there are hundreds, and we have links to all of them, one of the pictures you see is of him standing in his jacket proudly that is just torn and burnt and shredded. Because he either – we're not really sure why he either fell asleep too close to the fire in the tent and it got burnt or yeah. whatever. But he's standing in it very much in sort of like a Jolly Green Giant pose. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> but this this trip was for fun and to test themselves. So you don't go doing that if you're if you're just going to eat out of the car. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's really about self-fortitude 
and and proving oneself. Yes. All right. Who's next? Okay. So this person has a, he's kind of a French last name. So it's Nicolai Thibault Brignols. Mm, very well done. No, oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, Nikolai was 25 years old and he was the great grandson, I believe, of a French immigrant. That's why his name was that. But he was very much a Russian yes. person. And he had already had, again, he was graduated with a degree in industrial civil construction. And even though he was very well read and very well educated, he was all about finding the humor in all kinds of situations. So again, another lighthearted soul, but also somebody who's graduated and accomplished. But it just it, we're starting to paint a picture of what these kids are like. So all right. So who's next? Well, this gentleman is, is interesting because he's a little older than the rest. We'll get to his story a little later, but his name is Simeon or Semen, known as Alexander to the group Zolotoryov. Yes. And some people say a nickname for Alexander is actually Sasha. Right. And this yes, is he's a, called Sasha. Sometimes. Yes, they call him Sasha. There's been some dispute over what his real name was, what name he offered to the group. Did they know that his first name was uh, – what did you say, Simeon? Simeon, uh, Sim, Simeon or, or Semen. Yes. Yeah. It is Which, actually spelled like <laughs> – We're not going to – For the Americans, yes. it's actually spelled like Semen, but it's uh, <laughs> I think Simeon or something like that. Yeah. Now, the thing about him that's really interesting is that he was 37. He was the old man, and he was brought into the group kind of late in the game. We're going to come back to that a little bit. We'll get into more detail about it later, but the long and short of it was that he was supposed to go out with another group, and supposedly the timing didn't work out for him, and he came to Igor Dyatlov. At, at the last leg of the trip, at right? the, yeah, yeah, and said, hey, I want to join this troop. He was a surprise member. And they were all a little, wait, wait, we don't know this guy or whatever. But then once they traveled with him a little bit and he was singing and silly yeah. and all the things that they liked, he just fit right in. And right. everybody was happy to have him along. Yeah. The thing about him was he had like a lot of tattoos, which nobody had. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. And the reason he had them was because he was a combat veteran. He was a World War II veteran. Uh, yeah, I think a combat engineer. Yes. And uh, we'd read a, in a blog earlier today how very few of them survived. Yeah, he was in a group that basically had a 20 to 30% survival rate. Yeah, or less. Like uh, More than 80% of those guys got wiped out because they would come in and secure a battle site and get picked off as they were doing it. So they actually issued them iron breastplates to kind of protect them, but it didn't help much. It did not help. And in yeah. one of the websites that we have uh, a link to in our show notes for this show is a really amazing website that actually was taken down for some unknown reason, but it was archived, and we have a link to the archived version of it. There's a picture of one of those units that does what he did on there, and under the picture it says, note, nobody has more than one or two medals, yeah. because after that, it's kind of like your, your lifespan. <laughs> if you're, you've, you're in the position to own to earn a third or fourth medal, you're very close to death. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. But he had four, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So okay. that's the thing about him. All right. And then the last gentleman, the only one to survive, Yuri Yudin. Right. So about Yudin, he is typically called a survivor. And he was 22 at the time. It's a little bit questionable for you to say that he's a survivor because he was not in the tent the night that whatever happened went down. He had turned back just prior to that. He did not want to turn back, but he had sort of a lifelong issue with medical problems. He had rheumatism. He had sciatica. He had bad back issues. He had knee problems. There were all kinds of things wrong with him. And it seems like what, why on earth would somebody like this that – that's this frail, for lack of a better word, go on a trip like this. It turned out he had always kind of had a lifetime of affliction, but that hiking had sort of restored his vim and vigor. It was it, It's what brought him back. And he was very much respected for wanting to do this trip. All, all of the group thought that he would make it. 
But the bottom line is, once they got past the legs where they were taking the trains and the trucks and it was time to start skiing, he was doing okay and he got to a certain point. But when it was time to really get into the the deep part of it, he was in so much pain he had to turn back. And we'll get more specific on that in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, a terrible attack of rheumatism, which the cold really exacerbates. Exactly. It's it's awful. And he lived a pretty good while. He actually was 76 years old when he died. Well, he died. You know, he just died uh, April 27th. 2013, right after he was interviewed by Donnie Eicher. Right, for the book. Pretty close after that, yeah, so. So that's everybody, right? Yes. Okay, so we've covered everyone. We just wanted you guys to have a a vision of who we're dealing with here. This is not just, you know, statistics. These aren't just people. And also, this is the other thing you think, and maybe I do this, maybe this is, um, I don't know, narcissism is not the right word, but you always do this thing where you think, oh, you hear about something tragic that happened and you think, oh, I need more details. I need to know what did they do wrong? Oh, these guys were dumb. They weren't prepared. They didn't know what they were getting into. They were in over their heads and you think, oh, well, that's what happened. I would never do that. You kind of tell yourself that. That is not the case with these people. They couldn't have been more prepared. They couldn't have been smarter. They couldn't have been a better team. They were practical. They were organized. They had lots of experience. They were just amazing people and this shouldn't have happened to them by all accounts and by all rights, whatever happened, which is hard to say, should not have happened to them. No, your podcast isn't broken. Many of you have, for the first time in your lives, just heard black metal from a Scottish band called Ellersith. <laughs> from Scotland. Yes, yeah. they are from Scotland. And they have an entire album dedicated to the Diatloff Pass mystery. I actually reached out to them and said, hey, can we use this track? Will you send me your lyrics? I pretty much expected not to hear anything back because we always reach out to people and no one writes us back. Yeah. They wrote back. They were like, absolutely. <laughs> use the music. Here's the lyrics. This song, which we just played a piece of, is called Compelling Natural Force. That's an indirect quote of a phrase Lev Ivanov, the lead prosecutor, said was what killed the hikers in his final report. Although according to Donnie Eicher's book, Ivanov said compelling unknown force. That is my favorite phrase of this whole story. Compelling unknown force. So anyway, it's a cool track. I'm not really sure I thought I was going to be into black metal, but I, I kind of <laughs> like that track. I can't admit. Forrest does yeah. a pretty funny impression of it. Please don't. No, do no, that. no. I was just going to say, I was, uh, hopefully I was I was hoping that he'd left a message and it sounded like that. Yes, you can use the part <laughs> of the song. Please, please do. It's fine. It yeah. was just an email, yeah. unfortunately. Okay. But anyway, I'm uh, wishing those guys the best of luck. I think uh, I think they got a pretty cool sound there. And, well, you, you know, know, we have a lot of Scottish fans for some unknown reason. One just wrote us, and I've been meaning to write him back, Andy Peary, who said, we did a great job <laughs> on pronouncing Edinburgh. Oh, way back with the Greyfriars Kirkyard. Yes, yes. So, and and, in talking about that, the pronunciation we tried to do of the Mi'kmaq people, we had a great listener, Mr. Jordan Bones, write in saying like, well, you guys are close, but it's actually Mi'kmaq. So, and I think I was putting a a weird cue on it. These are the the native people of Nova Scotia who uh, lived, uh, were indigenous to the area where the Oak Island story takes place. So we're very close. My point being is that we try and get as close as possible out of respect. And it's also just fun to say. So, you know, but please let us know if we're we're close or, or getting it right or not. So thank you, though. Indeed. All right. So getting back to the story at hand, uh, Dialoff Pass, where do we start here? I want to go back to sort of – I had some overarching themes that I wanted to cover about this team of kids who I've unfortunately – or not unfortunately. I guess I don't know. I, I feel like I grew kind of close to <laughs> in doing this story. 
uh, the pictures drew me in. They, of all these pictures, all right, let's let's back up a little bit. The first thing is what they're trying to do is a, is achieve what's called a um, class three certification or grade three. I, I think either one is fine. Well, you know, in that interview, Donnie says it a couple of different ways, I think, as well. So. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I'm not going to look at oh, it. Oh, I'm sorry. You guys can look at it. Up. It's a class Wait. three certification. You're not going to cut that out? Which, no, I'm going to leave it. <laughs> it's Because it's not really that important what right. it's actually called. The point is, it's the highest level of certification they can get as hikers. It's You're known as a master of sport if you get this. You're sort of, you know, you're, well, the, the, you're the king of hiking in yes. Russia in Hi- the 50s, right. <laughs> which is a big deal. Well, you know, things like mountains, passes, rivers, like mountains. when you're rafting... Difficulties are graded, so it's like a very difficult mountain climb could be a five ten. Right. Know what I'm saying? There's there's different. Right. Uh, you have class three rapids, exactly. class four rapids, exactly. class five. Yes, I've right. I've, I've, I've kayaked class one and two and, and low threes. And you get stuck into a class five <laughs> underneath the bridge in your underwear. But no, we won't talk about that. That wasn't a class five. Okay, rapid. you tipped over. I did over, get though. stuck. Yes. <laughs> yes. Nothing Thanks like for this though. That. Yeah. Well, there's photos. By God, we're gonna get photos. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. Okay. So the point is they were trying to get this certification. And Igor, when he put this team together, this group of friends, they had all hiked together a bunch of times before. He was very well respected. He was, as Forrest hinted at earlier, he was sort of totalitarian. He had this methodology. These guys, though, they were cut out for this and they wanted to travel together. Now, here's another thing that was going on. And I I got this information from uh, Iker's book, Dead Mountain. There was a thing going on in Russia called the Thaw, which was sort of the transition that went – from Stalin to Khrushchev. Khrushchev was trying to sort of ease the cultural oppression that Stalin had in place. And so this was called the Thaw. These guys, these kids were, a lot of them were still stalwart communists. They were they were part of their, their home system and they were okay with that. But they also wanted to play music and write poetry and, and explore and be well-educated. And they had a, a wide sense of goals. And, and being outside and getting away from things, this was a new freedom that they didn't necessarily have before under Stalin. So there was ways to just really break out and, and be free. And that's what they wanted to do. And this group of kids, honestly, I, I tried to write down a list of words that made me think how I would quantify what kind of people they were. This seriously is difficult for me because I, 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 I got kind of attached to them. The, these are the words that I came up with when I thought about as a whole what kind of group they were. They were smart. They had fortitude. They were well-organized. They were experienced. They were methodical. They were silly. They were determined. They were creative. And they were practical. They had all these things together. And, I, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts for, for a while. And, you know, you have these different laws. and you know, Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, all that kind of stuff. And, and these guys had all that stuff in spades. And not only that, as hikers, they were tough as nails. They had more fortitude than I think a lot of people do today. Now, some people have said that Dyatlov himself, that Igor, you know, was a very young man, was, you know, possibly an adrenaline junkie or he wanted to – he wanted to be in these really dangerous situations, but I, I did not perceive that overall when you when you look at all the information. Well, it's not really – I wouldn't call them dangerous situations. They didn't take – you know, because adrenaline junkies can be said to take unnecessary risks. You know, jumping off a sheer cliff wall in a wingsuit certainly looks exhilarating, but some would say you don't really need to do that. He was really more out for tests of endurance 
and skill and orienteering. Yes. And, and, and really, yeah, it's about honing your skills in the outdoors. Yes. These are kids that I would take and, you know, maybe put into qualifications for the military, for boot camp or whatever, and I think they would do well. They, they took it very, very seriously. Right. And they took their preparations very seriously. They, they knew how to f- have fun, but they also knew what risks not to take. And one of the one of the best evidences of this is one leg in the trip when they needed to uh, build what I think it was called a labaz or labaz. I can't remember the the word exactly, but it's where you build a shelter for the stuff that you you're going to need on the descent. Yeah, it's a cache. Yeah, and you don't right. want to take it up. Which right. so they built this shelter. They put stuff in the shelter so that they could move on. One of the things they put in there was uh, Georgie's mandolin. Mm-hmm. This was their most prized possession. The music was the most important thing in the world to them. They loved to sing and write songs and and rehearse songs and probably sing songs from Golden Symphony and all that kind of stuff. They put this mandolin in there without even probably too much of a second thought because you know what? This next leg, it's not practical to bring that. We have to move on from that right now. Yeah. So it's like they knew how to have fun. They knew when it was time to stop having fun. And they were very calculating and methodical about how that all went down. Now, I'm not saying they didn't have a bunch of jokes or an argument about leaving it behind. But the bottom line is it was left behind because it wasn't practical to carry it on the next leg of their trip. Yeah, well, I think what you're getting at is that what happens to them later and what seemingly is their reaction to something seems very out of character for people this serious and skilled and determined to make it through and and uh, with a lot of experience as well. Yes, so exactly. So it's, it's very – that's what it, – it's one of the major things that does not add up. All right. So just quickly, I want to talk a little bit about the grade three Master of Sports certification and what its requirements are. Uh, we've made a conversion to miles since most of our listeners are Americans. It was 300 kilometers. But basically, here's the bottom line. You have to go 186 miles and a hike lasting a minimum of 16 days. Half of that has to be done in uninhabited territory. And 62 miles of it have to be done in difficult terrain. That sounds like a death march. Yeah. Which, I, which it, I'm sadly 186 into. miles. Yeah. yeah. No, no. But That's you don't, the worst joke you could possibly <laughs> No, no. You know what I'm saying, though? It's, yeah. it's not done for fun. Yeah. This is done as a test of will and strength and uh, bragging rights. Yeah. But it's, it's, also, it's also using your mind in harsh conditions. You know what I'm saying? Because, again, you have to orienteer. They did make a mistake, not to jump ahead here. Actually. Why don't you t- why don't you quickly just for people that don't know what orienteering is maybe you should just quickly Well you're using you're using a map and compass basically really relying on the compass and you take a bearing and you have to plot a course and of course you know if you if you see like well we can't go over the very peak of that mountain that's that's silly we have to plot around it but you still have to keep your bearings Yes and and so their ultimate destination was to get to Ortorten mountain right Yes right and that's I think right. it was about uh, what 6 miles over six miles further from where they they camped last. Yes. Okay. They were on their way, and they should have made it. And again, going back to the fortitude of these kids, they didn't have GPS. They didn't have Gore-Tex. They didn't have – in fact, what they had on their shoes, a lot of them, they had what they call burkas, which is not the burka like you think yeah, of but a covering, Islam, sure. but it's a covering. Yeah. They would make these by hand – and cover their boots with them, right? fabric that actually the ladies sewed together and they would put them over their boots. They would just layer with sweaters yeah. and shirts and jackets and hats. They were layering and yeah. their skis in some cases, in the pictures anyway, it looked like they were their boots were basically tied on to their skis. <laughs> right. You know? I mean, this is 
roughing it. It's, it's, I mean, look, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not so early, you know, it's yeah. not, it's not the 1800s. No, but, you know what I'm saying? But, but they, so they have a uh, gear that is fairly well made and durable, but it's not like what you have today. Okay? No, there's no polymers. Yeah. There's no special fabrics. It's all, you know, duck cloth. It's, and oil skins and, and just very, but they got through it. Yes, they did. Yeah. And they had done, they had hiked numerous times, numerous expeditions, which they had all done together and come back on, like we said, they've been shot along the way. <laughs> they've been all kinds yeah. of things that they yeah. had been through. And, and Igor was actually known for his calmness under pressure. And this is another thing about him. There was a story of him on a prior hike. He was with a group and they were hiking and they had come along and they heard this huge, loud, thundering noise. They turned around and it was a herd of wild horses running directly at them. So obviously you're under the serious threat of being trampled to death. They turn around. He tells everyone to get together, put their backs together, get in a circle and stand still. They do this and they're doing this while I don't know how many dozens, who knows, hundreds of wild horses are running at them. And they're standing there and the horses come and they just go around them like a rock in a river. This is again from uh, Dead Mountain. Yeah. But they were, he figured it out. They survived with zero injuries in that particular situation. So that tells you a little bit about his ability to perform under pressure. Well, it you know, to do the right thing in a moment of possible panic. Exactly. You know, which, again, you're going to wonder about a little later on here. Yeah. All right. So backing up a little bit, we're going to talk about how they set out. They, they, they got all their stuff together from the school. They were actually in room 531. I don't know how Iker figured that out, but he did. <laughs> okay. Room 531, getting all their gear together. There's diary entries. Which maybe that's it because uh, Zena was keeping a diary of all their activities. Now, this is the important thing to get that class or the grade three, excuse me, certification was that everything had to be super well documented. We alluded to that earlier. But in order for them to get this certification, which I guess for whatever reason the school handed out or or made the evaluation on. Well, this was a hiking club they were in, and I believe overlooked by some faculty members and volunteers. That's right. So it's not a government organization. Right. uh, But it's it's like the Sierra Club. They're kind of self-monitored. They uh, give out certifications based on your performance. Right. It's like in the Boy Scouts. There was the 50-mile hike. You do do this hike. You got to verify it. You get this patch that's, you know, so yeah, it's the exact same thing. And so in order to get the certification, they're keeping a diary entries. They're taking a lot of pictures that show not only, I mean, yes, they are goofy and a bunch of, I mean, really goofy. They have a lot of fun. There's yeah. giggling. No, they're I mean, smiling. Not doing you know. stupid things. But no, but just like yeah, kids on a, yeah. you know, on a fun trip, which, right. you know. Wrestling, falling down in the snow, those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And, but they're also showing, hey, we're hiking single file. Our yes. tent has been built correctly on the right part of the slope to avoid wind, all that kind of stuff. They're showing their, their methodology. So they leave the school, and in order to get to the point where they're really starting the hike, they have to take a pretty long trip. They actually traveled from Yekaterinburg, which at the time was uh, Sverdlovsk, right? Yeah, right. I think the general mountain area, first of all, it's in the, in the northern Ural Mountains. Yes. So if you look at a map— it's We're on the kind of, edge of Siberia. Yeah, the gateway to Siberia. <laughs> but it is, if you divide Russia in half, it's it's kind of in the, the left half, the western side, but directly center— of this mass. Yes. So kind of st- – you're out in the middle of the nowhere to begin with. Yeah. You know. You're going from nowhere to nowhere. To a smaller nowhere. Even more nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But so they took a train or a series of trains over 300 miles. Then they had to go 45 miles by bus 
And then they went another 25 miles by a truck, and that's when they started skiing. Now, along the way, there was a lot of things that happened, again, that make them even more endearing to me uh, in terms of when you start to backtrack their their steps. Along the way, they stopped at a school. They went and visited with these young kids. They spent a lot of time with them talking about the hike and playing music and hanging out, and the kids became very affectionately attached to them and were really sad when they left. In fact, they wound up some of them wound up writing to Yuri Yudin later and saying, what happened to our friends? Where are they? And he said mm. he just couldn't even write back. He was like, what can I possibly say to that? Yeah. And uh, miraculously, actually, Donnie Eicher in Dead Mountain, he found that school, which was very difficult to find, and went and walked through it. He wasn't sure what room they had been in, but he was able to visualize that experience that they had there. And then one of the next places that they went was to a woodcutting station or this this base I think it was called Sector 41. That was one of the first steps on the on the where the trip is starting to get real serious. And there were these loggers. They apparently hit it off with these folks too. Wherever they went, they were very popular and these loggers were all I, I think to their surprise, very well educated and artistic and creative. And there was a man there who I love uh, named Baroda. They called him Baroda, which means beard or the beard. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had a substantial beard. This is hilarious to me because I have a, a very good friend, John Burns, who uh, me and my friend Mark nicknamed the beard a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah, well, your beard rivals his, though. No, say. it yeah. does. It's yeah. funny. I always had like more of a beard, but we called him the beard. <laughs> okay. But anyway, yeah. I, I, dig- I digress. Anyway, this guy Baroda, he's in a bunch of the pictures. He's amazing. Looking, and I guess he was uh, very well read and artistic and could recite poetry and play music. And again, they just had this really great time with the woodcutters. And they hung out with them for a while before they set off. They exchanged gifts. And this was one of the last steps in any kind of civilization. And I use that term very loosely. I'm talking like, you know, compared to the absolute outreaches of, of any sort of settlement. Their next step was to be at this abandoned archaeological site. That's what it's referred to, the abandoned archaeological site. This was a site that I guess they, there had been research, it was a collection of rocks and minerals and some sort of thing. I don't know if it was a government operation or whatever, but the long and short of it was there was no one there anymore. So the woodcutters, I believe, I could have this fact wrong, so don't, don't quote me on the specifics of this, but somebody had arranged for them to have somebody take a sled with all their packs up so that to get to the archaeological site, they could just ski without the packs. And the packs were on this sled, uh, which I think was pulled by a mule or something. The gentleman who operated the sled was an ex-con. He had spent some time in the gulag. And there's been some speculation, oh, this guy's dangerous or whatever, but he was... Yeah, well, there were a lot of innocent people that ended up in the gulag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's so. a very good point. Yeah. There were a lot of... And there was some bad things going on, like oh, yeah. Saddam Hussein type stuff going on, or you know, even Gaddafi type stuff going on in the prisons. But that was not something that these kids needed to be worried about. And this guy was referred to pretty much by all of the locals as sort of almost like a grandfatherly character. There was no threat. There was no mention of why he was – why he did time or that he was like this dangerous rapist or murderer or anything. He just was the old man who helped him get up to the archaeological site. So they went up there and in fact his – I think his sled was going so slow they actually lost sight of him as they were cross-country skiing <laughs> yeah. up that way. Yeah. And they got up there, and, and that's important to note at this point that Yuri Yudin, who is the one that we're calling the survivor, and by the way, I don't mean to take anything away from him, uh, you know, God rest his soul. I don't mean to take anything away from him or his classification as, as a survivor. He's definitely a survivor, but what I'm saying is he wasn't in the tent the night that everything went down. He already is having a lot of physical pain. He's dealing with rheumatism and sciatica, and, and that's straight out of uh, one of the diaries. 
and dealing with knee problems and all sorts of stuff. And he's trying to ignore it, but it's getting worse and worse and worse the further they go. And when they finally get to the archaeological site, which he really wanted to get to because he was studying geology or he had an interest in geology, uh, he wanted to at least get to that point. He, when they went to bed or when they got up the next morning, he was like, I just, I can't, I can't go yeah. any further. And he was sad to have to turn back. And, and by all their diary entries, which we have links to the diaries, you can actually look at English translations of the diaries. If you want to get into it, thanks to Tess, we have found pretty much every bit of documentation you could ever hope to look at with respect to this case. Everything that's available and hasn't been redacted, one of Forrest's favorite <laughs> well, words. Yeah, you're going to, well, you're going to find enough to keep you occupied for a very long time and write your own book. We have a link to 500 megabytes of super clear high-resolution photographs from the hikers from all around that area. We have links to post-mortem pictures, which I actually haven't looked at and I'm not sure I have the stomach for because I've seen enough of them just <laughs> yeah. in general. And then we have links to their diaries. Their diaries have been scanned. They've been translated. Or Google Translate actually will translate it for you if you visit in Chrome as your browser. But it, it's pretty amazing stuff. But the, the long and short of it is they were sad to see Yuri go. And one of the more famous pictures is of him hugging – not Zena, but – Ludmilla. Uh, Ludmilla, yeah. yes, yeah. as they're about to depart. And you can see Igor Dyatlov off to the left. Yeah, of he's smiling approvingly. Smiling. But no, no, they, they want him to go, but they realized he was in a lot of pain and he just wasn't going to make it. Yeah. You know? So And their their goal was – again, it's not a leisure trip. I mean it's for fun, but it's really rugged, cold fun. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like they enjoyed it, but this is really not a comfort trip. Right. Yeah, and it's, so you know, It's to see if they could do it. Apparently he went around trying to gather as many sort of errant rocks and geological things that he could find while the grandfatherly old gentleman, who I think his name was Slava, but I'm not sure, was gearing up to take the sled back down the hill. And hill, I used this probably the wrong word. I'm going to say mountain. Yeah. And he was rushing him. He was like, come on, we got to go. So, you know, he returned. And one of the things about Yudin that's interesting is at, when he went back down, he didn't go straight home. So when these guys wound up not being where they were supposed to be a few days later, nobody knew it because he had gone to visit some friends somewhere or something like that. And he actually didn't return back to their home base for quite some time, at which point he was surprised to find out they, they weren't back. So that's one of the things that happened with him. Anyway, so that, that's all the first legs of the trip up until the point where they were now on their own with their packs on skis and setting off into the snow towards O'Torton. Mountain? Oh, Torton. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Basically, R after the first O, doesn't Yeah, it? I mean, the name of the whole area or the region in the northern Urals is called Sverdlovsk Oblast. And that's just kind of the name of the, the range or the, or the district, maybe a huge district there. Or Torton Mountain is what the, the goal they were trying to get to. The side of the mountain that they were traversing was Kolatsakil. I think I sang it. Yes. It's a transliteration in Russian of Holachotl, which means dead mountain in Mansi. And Mansi are the indigenous folks of the region. Yes. So everybody says, oh, it's mountain of the dead. Now, there's two different things about that. It's not literally the mountain of the dead. However, I just read something today where there are Mansi legends that, no, no, we did mean, yes, in one sense, there is no game there. That is one sense of the word. No game, no agriculture, yeah. no it's, right. everything's dead. They herd reindeer, but there's not a lot of big game. There's no yeah. bears. And they there's, hunt. And they hunt. And yeah. so there's not there, – but there's not a whole lot going on. So that's one reason for the name Dead Mountain is that there's just no game there. And other people say, oh, Dead Mountain is very you know mysterious. And you think like, okay, no, no, you got that wrong. 
However, I just read from the one translated Russian webpage today that, uh, no, no, there are Mansi legends of a hunting party of nine who go out, uh, don't return, their friends go looking for them, they find them dead with no apparent reason. And so apparently this has been going on for quite a while that it's not just them, it's not just the Mansi hunting party, geologists go missing. Yeah. And, and the number nine keeps coming up. So anyway, a lot of lore, a lot of legend, not great ones. People didn't really go there a lot. Yeah. And especially the local Monsi people didn't really traipse around there, you know, at all because they kind of feared it. Again, it was like a little bit like Oak Island. Yes. And by the way, while we're talking about them, we might as well go ahead and cover this. There, there's been an implication that maybe somehow they were involved in the disappearance of the of these nine hikers or these kids. But the bottom line is they are, were a peaceful people. Yes. They're, there was no reason to believe – because some people say, oh, we, they were treading on sacred ground. Oh, it's yeah. like they don't have sacred ground. Right. They don't <laughs> – that's there. not how they operate. And on top of that, one of I think one of them was joking like we don't even go to our sacred sites anymore anyway. Everyone just prays at home. It's like <laughs> yeah, that's not what's happening. Right. And in fact, when it came to the search and rescue, there were many Monsi volunteers who went out of their way to try and help find the kids. One of the things that the kids stumbled across the whole way, which they knew, and it's actually in uh, – there's many pictures of them and there's also uh, diagrams of where they copied them down in their diaries of the tree markings that the Monsi hunting parties would leave with these symbols on them. And you didn't know what the symbols were, but the symbols, like it would be three scratch marks and then a symbol and then four scratch marks. And it basically it was the number of people in the party, then the uh, family sign for whatever family it was, and then how many dogs they had with them. Mm, so Right. But the kids, they didn't even know how to necessarily follow those signs. It didn't necessarily indicate which way to go on the trail. And if it's covered in snow, you see the signs, but you you don't necessarily know where the next post is going to be. It's really meant for the local the local folks, the local hunters, to know uh, wh- you know what area they're in, who's been there, and what they can find there. Right. And really, they're markers. But what was kind of crazy is that I was looking at the diaries, the actual scans, which is kind of cool. And there were some diagrams in there, some drawings. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. I don't recognize that. Then we went and looked at the photos. And you could see that they were sketching these things. And yes. you were looking at the journals of the people who, who passed away. And it's just, I mean, again, it, it roots you to this, but it's also a little creepy. It's kind of just, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. But yeah, so so basically they're noting everything they find, very well documented. And I believe, so they're, they're making this trek, right, yes. on skis yes. now. Now it's where the timeline starts to get a little bit vague because there were no survivors from this point forward. And there's not a clear idea of everything that happened next. There are some diary entries, but nothing indicates anything out of the ordinary. The photographs, there are some strange, sketchy photographs, but most mm. of them are pretty <laughs> yeah. clear. We should talk about those. Uh, there are some, though, that we don't, we can't confirm the origin of that yes. are included in the roles that will maybe blow your mind. Yeah, yeah. there's, and, and yeah, it's... <laughs> Well, at least two. I don't know where to start with this. <laughs> no. The bottom line yeah. is this. They got up to the area that's now known as Dyatlov Pass, and they successfully built, in their absolute regulation way, their tent on this slope that is kind of out in the middle. There's no trees. There's no nothing. It's it's more or less – it's not even that steep an angle, yeah. the ground Well, that well Scott, I think what happened, though uh, – and correct me if I'm wrong – as good as they were at orienteering and and uh, following you know directions with map and compass, uh, I think the snow started to pick up pretty heavily, and they got off course. As good as Igor was, they ended up, I think, in a in a westerly direction, up the side of the slope, and realized that they were off course, but not too far. Right, they had right? shifted just a little bit, drifting right. by degrees. Because I think the the plan was to get over this pass that day. 
And once they made it over to this leeward side where the, the, wind, the wind shouldn't be as bad, then they were going to make camp. Right. But since they, had, then, since they had kind of gone out of their way a little bit and they were up the side of the slope a little bit to the west, they could have gone back down into the valley. And I think Yuri was theorizing that Igor didn't want to go back down the slope to may, or maybe into the trees where the weather wouldn't be so bad because he didn't want to lose any high ground and, and also to practice camping on the side of a mountain, which was also part of the, you know, part, part of the, of the classification. Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. So they, so they ended up, they, they ended up making camp there. Yes. And they set their tent up. They set it up perfectly and they did everything right. And we know this because we found their tent. The next thing. Well, that, we didn't, but the, it was, yeah, <laughs> we, it was people, found. not me. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I do feel like I've lived this. I know. Before. I know. Yeah. So eventually they're supposed to return to Vichy, which is the last, the last major town that they left from. Yeah. And they did not turn up in Vichy when they were supposed to. In theory, when they should have turned up after hiking all the way to Ortorton and returning. And when they didn't, the families were starting to be contact the school. What's happening? Is anyone – and it took a while for anyone to get mobilized. Eventually, they set out to search for the Dyatlov party. Yeah, I believe uh, Igor talked to Yuri and there was some discussion. Of course, no, he's very conscientious. Yes. So he says, well, I'll tell you what. When you get back to Vijay, I'll telegram you – on January 12th, that we're fine. Now, February. On, I'm sorry, February yes, 12th. February 12th, we'll tell, 1959. Right. We'll telegram, I'll tell, give you a telegram that we're doing okay. Now, the thing is, I think Yuri knew that they were maybe a couple of days behind. Maybe yes, up he to did. three. He, yeah, three, uh, three days behind. Right. So thought. when he didn't get a telegram, he it didn't wasn't, react. Yeah, because it was like, okay. And you know what? On these expeditions, being a day off or two is not such a huge deal. You're, you're covering a lot of ground on foot. So uh, there was no worry at the beginning. But now as days start to go by and there's still no word, yes. then family members, uh, faculty members at the school, people start to worry because they're not showing up. Right. And it, the more concerned they get, the more they're like, okay, we need to get somebody out there. We need to get some people up there to go. Now, there is a lot of very well-documented specifics about how the search went down. We're not going to get into that here. That's not what tonight's show is really about. It's more about what happened to them. But if you want to really get into that, believe me, there's a ton of information. <laughs> yeah, if you're a real, you know, Scott and I both like to watch 48 hours, and if you run a real mapping out of of the thing, you can certainly do that. But but we're not going to hit those points because you know I was thinking about this today. We had a lot of great research again by Tess. You were really d- dug into it. You read the book, uh, which I hadn't gotten to yet. I planned to, uh, but it really details. And I th- started thinking, it's like, you know, who ended up where? I mean, it's it's mildly interesting, but but it's not. It's not the main nut of this thing that it's so freaky and weird. Yeah. So about this, where again, how far people were from the tent where they ended up. Right. So here, here's where we get down to the nitty gritty of of what exactly was discovered when the search parties eventually did find the tent, which took several weeks, by the way. They saw the tent in the distance. It had there was an ice axe out in front, and the tent was collapsed from snow. Partially. Yeah, partially. Not collapsed and buried like avalanche, you know, no. just snow, a little bit of snow on the top. Its back had broken. It was kind of a long tent, which we have pictures of it. Well, again, this is a little side note. Yeah. Uh, didn't some folks think that the tent was improperly set up when they found it? There's something weird about that, that it was not reconstructed properly, and well, they wouldn't have done that. I have I have not read that. Okay. I have not read right. that. But you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you came across it. Well, there's so many little things. Yeah. yeah. But basically there were these were volunteers, some from the school, some were faculty members again. Yes, and uh, that, there was actually delays in the initial search because they had wanted to send this guy who would head the head of the hiking group from the school, but he was on a trip himself. 
Oh. And they're like, oh, we have to wait for him to come back. Mm. So it, it all delayed, although I don't think it would have made a difference because once they got there, they went inside the tent and, and the state at which they found things was was pretty amazing. Yeah, Mikhail Sharavin, who was a, a student and friend, I guess, from, from the university there, was the first one to discover the tent. But, of course, he called over the uh, some of the other authorities. Now, there were military people, I believe, and investigators yes. along with them. Yes, and as they went, as they looked inside of it, even though it was partially collapsed – what they saw was a very orderly site. Everything was in its place, and you could actually see the trademark behavior of a, of a Dyatlov trip, his, his methods. You know, the, the tent was laid down. They took the skis off, and they made a platform at the bottom, which is typical. They also would empty packs out and make a sort of a floor. So that, And then along the sides where all these boots were stacked, there was some slices of ham wrapped in a napkin. There was the stove, which had not been assembled. Now, in today's day and age, you think, oh, assemble the stove. This, when you go camping, it takes – you don't even have to assemble it. It takes like five seconds or yeah. you know whatever. But back then, whatever stove they were traveling with, which I've yet to see a picture of, <laughs> right. apparently was very difficult to assemble, so much so that they had competitions yeah. to see who could put it together the fastest. And they had <laughs> written about this in their yeah. journals. Well, we'll think I think the it. fastest time was an hour and two minutes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, I'm picturing like, you know, a, a Civil War tent with yeah. standing sides. Now, this was lower. We were, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, so it's, I think the conditions were very cramped, uh, especially for nine people. You know, you yeah. really don't want nine people in a tent. But it's, yeah. but it's a big, heavy canvas tent. 80 square feet. Right. So yes. again, mostly standing, partially collapsed, but maybe a little weirdly set up again. I have not read that. I cannot okay. confirm. All right. I appreciate that you're saying that, yeah. but I did not see anywhere that it was not properly set up. Well, that's a, that's a thing. There's some differentiations between what people have reported on site and what government yes. agencies have reported as being there and what was correct. And they think that maybe some – and not maybe purposely bungling it, but a little bit of bungling going on. Yeah. With, the, with now what's become a crime scene. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. In terms of tracking all the footprints and the areas around the tent or whatever, they don't know what was rescuers, what yeah. did rescuers – in fact, some of the things that were later turned up missing, some of the rescuers copped to – like there was chocolate. They couldn't oh. find the chocolate and these guys no were yeah, we, way. We, oh we, we, we ate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this well, sort of stuff happens. Yeah, you know, of course. But, but the bottom line is when they went in the tent, no people. No, no people in the tent. And not only that – the the back wall of the tent was slashed. When we get to it, at first, all they know was slashed. They don't right. know how it was slashed. Right. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Yes. But they, so the boots, the the ham and the napkin, the stove in the middle, not built, everything neat and orderly. They said it felt like they were coming back at any minute. Unfortunately, nobody was there. They couldn't find them. So now we begin the search for. The survivors at this point, they're like, okay, they've they've left the tent. They must be around here somewhere. Well, didn't they find two sets of parallel tracks leading away from the tent? That and that's really the only thing yes. that they found. But after about uh, was it five hundred feet or so, they, they seemed to they seemed to well, they got buried with with new fallen snow exactly and, and drifts. They lost track of them. Right. Yeah. Here we're going to get into the details of how they were all found, which is not I'm not particularly comfortable with, but I do want to share it because I think it's it's there's significant importance to it. This a little bit of a trigger warning. We're going to be talking a, a little bit about forensics and yeah, corpses, the, the, yeah, corpses yeah, so. and the nature of their bodies. Uh, we, we're going to try to do this as respectfully as we can. Yeah, and the young listeners, it's probably a little bit shocking for them. Yeah, yeah so yeah, keep so, that in mind. After they didn't show up, keep in mind they were supposed to return to Vichy, if I'm saying that right. Yeah, uh, February twelfth. Yeah, 
ostensibly. As Yuri said, oh, I know they were two or three days behind. So Could let's be just say the, the 12th, 16th, or, the, yeah, 12th yeah. or 15th or 16th. Right. The searches had been going on for quite some time. I can't remember what day the tent was found. I think on February 26th. It was, it was yeah. That's, oh, it was found on the twenty sixth. That's what I. That's what I had read. Okay. Uh, by Mikhail Sharavin. Okay, so Sharavin and his companion Yuri uh, Koptelov, uh, if that's uh, there, that might be there mm-hmm. might be a typo there, but I think they uh, were a couple of young guys, and they found they were down by this cedar tree in the edge of the woods, and they saw a knee sticking out of the snow. So. They didn't. They actually didn't excavate it. They went back to tell the other members of the search party. A group came down to the cedar tree, and when the snow was carefully excavated, they found two bodies, both men. The men are lying side by side, not wearing jackets or, for that matter, pants. Or shoes. Or shoes. No pants, no shoes, nothing. So these two men, number one is Yuri Doroshenko, who we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. He has a checkered shirt on and a pair of swim trunks under long underwear. Only the right leg of the underwear remains with the other leg torn away. His feet, again, no shoes. Snow is actually wedged between his toes. One, he lies face down in the snow with his arms folded under his head like a pillow. There are broken cedar branches lying underneath him. That's Doroshenko. Next to him, Georgie, our mandolin player. Krivonyshenko? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, this makes me sad. Anyway, the, he he was slightly more covered. He had an undershirt on, a checkered shirt, long underwear, briefs and socks. He's on his back with his face up. His mouth and eyes have been pecked out by animals. And Well, they, they think, yeah. They think. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is that there's broken branches of the tree. So they think that one of them or, or several of them had climbed up high. Possibly, you do that as a spotting technique because you, yes. you cannot see now where your tent was. So to gain without having to hike all the way there and, and find out you're you know you're you're a thousand yards off right they think one of them climbed up because there was broken branches well there's up to mul- like five meters high there's yeah. multiple theories as to yes. the tree climbing and oh, the broken okay. right. branches one is exactly what you said right which is a super valid theory because here's the thing once you get out of that tent in the nighttime you're screwed if you can't yeah, well, if you yeah. don't see it because yeah. the moon on a moonless that, night yeah the moon was not going to rise until 4 a.m. and it's it's widely thought that they didn't even really finish dinner or they didn't have there was still food laid out they were not it wasn't a 4 a.m. departure based on the state of the tent right so there's no moonlight if the wind is blowing or howling which it pretty much could do Without warning at any time, if there's snow blowing or whatever, you get more than a few yards away from it. Again, you go back to reading Into Thin Air with those survivors. You know, some of them were just mere yards away from camp and had no idea. And it's the same thing. It's actually going to be worse or, you know, as bad as, if not worse, here in the Urals. So they might have climbed a tree to get that point of view. I'm sorry. What did you want to say? Oh, no. I was just going to bring up the rule of threes that they say about survival. Oh, know? yeah. So you've we, heard that. It's yes. just a simple – and it's good for people to know out yeah. there in, in listener land. It's what they say generally. You can go three weeks without food, three days without, without water, water, and only three hours without shelter in right. a harsh environment. So right. there you go. And they knew this. So they the, the priority now is to get back exactly. if they can. So they may have climbed the tree to try to figure out where the tent was. Which uh, implies that maybe they thought the tent was safe or, you know, maybe they're just trying to see if the danger is still there, whatever the danger is. They may have climbed the tree, as some have said, to get away from something that was attacking them. Right. 
Because the broken branches go up about 15 feet, right? Yeah. I th- well, yeah. Nine. I've heard nine feet and above. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, yeah. The other thing they may have been doing is breaking branches off for kindling. And that was just convenient. It was right there. They were not clothed as they should have been. Right. They're just trying to make a fire and keep warm because there was a fire. And this was actually the only group of bodies that had a fire, which also implies they were spending some time there. And uh, estimates were that the fire had burned for around two hours. It was not enough wood to get them through the night, but it was enough to keep them warm for a little bit and maybe enough time to make another plan. Well, they're they're only about point nine three miles away. I mean, they ran yeah almost a mile away. Now you think like, okay, you go jogging, and miles not such a huge distance, but this is deep snow and freezing cold, so it's really hard to get through. Yes. So one mile could be like five. You know what yes. I'm saying? So and they don't know where they are now. Yes. That was on February twenty sixth, nineteen fifty nine. The next day, they found two more bodies. This was several hours after the first two, and. This, these were found – remember how I mentioned that a Monsi tribe leader had actually helped – I didn't say that it was a leader, but a, a Monsi elder and a tribe leader was one of the people that was helping the search parties. And his name was Stefan Kurikov, I believe. And they were led to the bodies by dogs. They had dogs and they knew that when the dogs were were signing on something yes. or whatever that term is for when you have a – Scenting or – Yeah, yeah, whatever, they, yeah. They, were, they knew something was up. So – they go a few inches below the snow and they see this arm and then another arm and then it becomes apparent that the arms are sort of in a defensive gesture. But what what it turns out to be is that they're not actually defensive. They're clutching this like little birch tree. Yeah. And the hiker – this particular hiker is dressed more warmly than the previously found bodies. He has a sweater over a checkered shirt plus a fur vest and ski trousers. He's actually dressed for the conditions as much as he could be. Like his companions though, he has no hat, no gloves, and no shoes, only a pair of mismatched socks pulled over his feet. He's got a watch on his left hand which is stopped at 531 and it appears that his – his body is is suspended in a struggle that he had been fighting against the elements like just up until the last moments because the defensive gesture that some people mistook for like, oh, uh, he's being attacked yeah. was him just hanging on to that tree, you know, maybe yeah. trying not to fall down into the snow like his last – knowing that his last moments were coming. This, by the way, was Igor Dyatlov. Uh, the leader. Yes. Yes. 22 years old. Yeah. Hmm. So – that was Igor. The next victim they found that day, who was also found by the dogs, was Zena, who was the person who kept most of the diary entries for the final days. And, and again, she was just below the surface, laying on her right side, face down with her arms twisted up beneath her. Her face is dark. It has actually dried blood on it. Her right leg is bent as if she had sort of been mid-climb before she collapsed. Like Dyatlov, she is dressed somewhat more reasonably than the first two victims, and she has a she has a uh, basically a hat, a ski jacket, and ski pants. But again, no shoes, uh, only socks on her feet. So a few days passed. That was February twenty seventh. Now we're at March fifth. Uh, a couple of other volunteers are 
probing a previously unexplored area. Now, probing means that they have these long metal rods or they're using ski poles and they're sticking. Like they do with av- you know, to find people in the avalanche. The, the other reason, I think, is because the dogs can't work in really deep snow. They exactly. Trouble, so, they don't yeah. get the scent. And there were a lot of cases where they were probing. They had uh, the ability to reach down up to eight feet and still could not hit the ground. That's how deep the snow wow. was in a lot of these places. So, however, they, these guys found uh, Rustic Slobodin, the, the wealthy kid. He was found laying face down with his right leg bent beneath him and his right fist pulled up to his chest. He had on a checkered shirt, sweater, ski trousers, several pairs of socks, and one single felt shoe. He also had on a ski cap, and he's oriented towards the tent as he had been, as if he had been working his way up the slope back to the tent. Well, so, the others did too. I mean, uh, Igor as well. Like somehow in their last desperate attempts, we're trying to get back to back the shelter to the of the tent. tent. Yeah. yeah. There was a small hollow near Rustic's mouth, which indicates that when he collapsed, he was alive because the snow melted out from where right. he was breathing. Now, was he was he hitting his head? That was one, one of them? Yes. Was they he think is was... the one that it had a blunt force trauma to the front of his head. Right. And so. they think maybe just him... Getting up and falling, getting up and falling, maybe hitting a – well, well they don't know. Well, there's all kinds of speculation right. about – you know. and again, like you said, he is halfway between uh, Dyatlov and Zena where they were, and all three of them were lining up towards the tent. Yes. So it seemed like they were trying to return. Okay, so almost two months pass before they find the last group of people. They find the last three remaining missing folks on May 4th, May 5th, uh, 1959, I believe it is. Well, there's, there's four travelers uh, still missing, right? Because yes. they found five of them now. Uh, and, yes, sorry, and, four, yes. Right, six. and so they're, yeah. buried, they're buried too deep in snow. They can't find anybody until the May thaw. So on May 4th, under about four meters of snow, which is about – a meter is about 3.28 feet roughly. So uh, it's still a deep, a deep amount of snow. They find the four bodies. Well, even before that, you know what led them to oh, it? Oh, no. The, the, the pile of clothes. Ah, right. Yes. So just quickly, before Forrest gets to that point, uh, Stefan Kirikov, the Mansi elder, comes across some unusual branches just under the snow in a ravine near the cedar tree. The branches have been cut by a knife. So near there, he finds a small cache of clothing abandoned in the snow, not attached to a person. And parts of these clothes were shredded. And on the second evening of searching, that's when they find the male body. Getting on to your point, though. Well, these remaining four were better dressed than the others that were found. And what they had done, though, in some cases, since the others were already dead, which is kind of a horrible thought because they realize their friends are dead. Now they have to focus on survival. They shred some of the clothes. I think Dubanina, her foot was wrapped in a piece of Kirvanashunko's wool pants. Right. So they're cutting up some of the clothing to, to keep themselves warm. But they're in a ravine now that's about 75 meters further into the woods than the cedar tree. Right. So for whatever reason, they kept going. Yeah. So whatever was this, this yeah. force, and this was, they kept running. Right. So the, the, the last four people, it's uh, Ludmila Dubinina, Alexander or Sasha Zolotyrev. Is that how you say it? Zolotyrev. Zolotyrev. Yeah. Alexander uh, Kolevatov and Nikolai Thibault Brignols, yes. Okay. Or Thibault Brignols. Yeah. They're all down in the ravine, and two of them are embracing each other, which and it seems like maybe they were trying to keep each other warm. Yeah, that's what you do to preserve body heat if you can. Right. And if anyone's seen Naked and Afraid, they know. <laughs> there was another one. Uh, I, there's another movie with uh, – never mind. That's a TV show. <laughs> okay. um, Kalevatov's ankle had been damaged, probably a minor previous injury, like the first five hikers. 
Uh, he died of hypothermia. Uh, Luda is the only initially indefinable body of the four. She was dressed in a cap, a yellow undershirt, two sweaters, brown ski trousers, and two socks on one foot. The other foot wrapped, as you said, mm-hmm. in um, wool pants. Yeah. Shredded. Well, here it says a torn sweater, but I'm not sure. But either way, it was a piece of somebody else's clothing. Right. Her head is pointed upstream. She is the one whose tongue was missing. And there's been well, a lot tongue, of, tongue and eyes, tongue and eyes, which they say, okay, well, it's scavengers. Or why is she the only one that doesn't have a tongue? Some people say, well, she was in the water and the, there were organisms that consumed it. Yeah. However, there was uh, forensic information that indicated that she had like a hundred, I can't remember, grams maybe of yeah. coagulated blood in her stomach, uh, indicating that maybe uh, she was alive. Right. When that happened. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But there's been no one saying that it was cut out or torn out. That's no. never been said. No. And in fact, there's the information is missing. It's not specific because there are some people that have this conspiracy idea that, right. you know, there was Russian special forces were interrogating them or, or torturing oh, them or yeah. something like that. Right. Oh, well, she she was the more outspoken one, Malvi According say, to Yuri, Yudin, the And survivor. that, you know, sometimes the the Russian, the KGB will, will make a point of somebody by doing something very graphic like that as a warning to others. Now, that's just one theory. Yeah. The other one you told me years ago was that the tongue, like with cattle mutilations, uh, contains a lot of radioactive traces. It's a good place to check for radioactive residue. Right. Yes. And, and but I Tongues think there's an eyes. Yeah. And so, well, there you go. But, but, the, but people were claiming, though, that she was face down in this frozen creek. Right. Well, with water flowing. And basically, after a couple of months, it was just putrefaction. Yeah. Know, that just rotted away her. T- yeah. I mean, yeah. it was a long time. Yeah. It's just soft tissue. It's the yeah. softest in the, in the face. So it's gone. Yeah. That's everybody. The thing to remember is that six of them died of hypothermia, according to the results. Right. The three people who did not die of hypothermia died under very suspicious circumstances. <laughs> well, yeah, you could say. So the forensic pathologist, Dr. Boris Vrozrojdeni, which I weirdly nice. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if it's right at all, but it's it's it sounds right. Vazroj Deni. Which well, we know what's weird is that his name translates into reborn in Russian, and he's basically a coroner. So interesting kind of profession for somebody with that name. His conclusion was that. These people died with massive force trauma. Yeah. The equivalent of like a 30-mile-an-hour car crash. I think oh, yeah, was, yeah. yeah. It was this, like, a, like what you would experience in a car crash, except there was no outward contusions, no physical signs on the skin like they'd been you know, beaten with a log or something or a rifle butt, as some people think. Or tortured or had weights put on. So it's very strange. Right. So there's there's some speculation that, oh, well, this just happened. They went down when they fell down in the ravine. The ravine was very big. They were running at night and they fell into the ravine and injured themselves. Yeah, but there's no external wounds related to bone fractures. Well, I'm just going to tell you when, again, I don't know why the Boy Scouts keeping – yes, I was in the Boy Scouts <laughs> quite a long time. In fact yeah. – I made it all the way to Eagle. Wow. Without, fact. without getting uh, beaten. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I was running in the dark at summer camp and I ran and fell in a ravine and Oof. broke my arm, my radius, clean in half. Wow. And it wasn't wow. even that big a ditch. No, but somebody anyway, I'm just saying this happened <laughs> yeah. to me. Oh, of course. No, it can happen when you're running and you, you don't see what's happening. You can easily trip and easily break or crack something. Yeah. 
and somebody earned their badge fixing you up, I'm sure. But, but you know, that's the no, thing. It, is that, actually, it was set incorrectly by a country doctor <laughs> oh, and no. had to be broken again two weeks later. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It was the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, that sounds bad. That, uh, uh, well, yeah. it explains anyway, a lot. So, another story. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, uh, so things aren't adding up. Oh, by the way, the yeah. doctor said... After leaving me alone in the room after an x-ray for quite yeah. some time, he came in and said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to re-manipulate your arm. And that's what he meant. As long as I live, <laughs> I will never forget. Yeah. And he basically then grabbed it and broke it with his hands. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. Well, no, it's a, it's a lot like, uh, yeah, woodworking, but I love their terms for it. The other fun one is reduction. Yeah. Which means you have something out of place and sticking out. They're going to put it back in. I'm not good with these stories. In any case, no. So what we're, what we're getting at here is they're finding the bodies – and they're doing autopsies, but things are not completely adding up. The guys by the cedar trees, their hands were, were kind of roughed up in some way. So they think, you know, some people postulate defensively, maybe they're fighting something off, or maybe it was from climbing the tree. And one of them had flesh from his palms embedded in his teeth, like he was chewing on his palms, maybe to stay warm or, yeah, or get them I don't numb. Know. Maybe they were numb or the frostbite. I can't yeah. even imagine. There's just a lot of little weird things. That, yeah, that but are, let's – Let's before we go any further. Let's get to the biggest question. Yes, the one question. That it all leads the, back to why did they leave the tent? Exactly. The tent was more or less intact. It was a safe place with food and shelter. What compelled these nine people, who I think we've painted a pretty good picture of as being super experienced, super intelligent? able to function as a team, very practical, all very loving and caring of each other, what compelled them to all run out of that tent in the dark, dark, dark of a moonless night in the Ural Mountains in separate directions, no less, to what they all had to know was quite possibly certain death? <laughs> Thanks for listening. And a surprise for those of you listening to the outro, we'll be back in one week with part two of Dyatlov Pass. Special thanks to Tess Feifel and Scottish band Ellersith. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane and our sound design by Ryan McCullough. Thanks to Jim Creative Design for our logo. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Google+. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.